0: Um, so this morning we are continuing on in Revelation 2. Uh, we're looking at the third church that, that um, John wrote a letter to um, from Christ. So we're going to start out a little bit differently this morning. Uh, we're actually going to play a video clip and it's not the uh, normal sort of video clip that we play on a Sunday morning. And what this video is about is it's showing us the, the city and the region and the history of a place called Bergama. Now, um, if you're a little bit like me, you probably thought, is that somewhere near Taupo? But no. Bergama is actually located in Turkey. And, and the way it relates to us is that it's the um, it's the location where the city of Pergamon was. So you have Bergama down in the valley and then you have this big hill behind it where Pergamon is. And you can go there today and visit, um, go up on a gondola and visit Pergamon, all the ruins of Pergamon. Uh, Now, it's of course, a lot of things have changed in 2,000 years, so it won't look exactly like it was back then. But what it does do is it gives us a glimpse of what was there and it shows us some of the buildings that were actually influential on the church of of Pergamon at the time. And it also just gives us a glimpse. There's a part there which shows uh, the gondolas taking tourists up the hill, and it gives you a glimpse of what it was like because it was built on a great big high hill overlooking a valley. And um, so I think you all good to play this, Thomas. Excellent. We might have to turn this. Right. So as you saw at the end there, that was a uh, production put together by a gentleman called Gokan Guzla, and. And it just really showcases the area there. Um, I must just put in a bit of a disclaimer and an apology now. I'm a a boy from Foxton and um, my pronunciation of certain Greek words and Roman words and things like that uh, may show where my heritage come from. So any of the Greek or Romans amongst us today, my apologies in advance. Okay, so if you're to visit Bergama today and catch that gondola up to the city of Pergamon, you can walk amongst the ruins of many buildings that were there in the time that John wrote this letter. And um, you can visit, it's it's an Acropolis. Now, if you're a little bit like me, sort of know what an Acropolis is. What an Acropolis is, is that it's a fortified part of a Greek city. And um, typically on a hill, which we clearly see there. Sorry? Sorry? Acropolis. My Greek friends helped me out already. Okay, so if you were to visit there, you can visit um, many places there. You can see the temple of Asclepius. <laughs> okay, the temple of Asclepius, it was a very famous temple at the time and it was a centre of healing. It was like a big medical centre. That was there at the time. And it was quite influential on the Church of Pergamon. So we'll come back to that a little bit later. Uh, They also had a theatre there with a seating capacity of 10,000. And we would have seen that on the video. It actually had the steepest seating of any theatre in the ancient world. And that was quite clear there. It's a bit like Athletic Park, eat your heart out. Of course the um, city of Pergamon didn't have rugby in those days so... So it wasn't quite the same. You can visit the Sanctuary of Athena, um, the ruins of the Library of Pergamon. Now the Library of Pergamon was second only to the Library of Alexandria and they held there some 200,000 volumes. There's royal palaces, the Temple of Dionysus, there was a Roman bath complex, so all these things you could go and see there today. Uh, One thing that you can't quite see which we'll be talking about later is the altar of Zeus you can see the foundations of where it was but what they did in the early 1900s is they packed the whole thing up they took it over to Germany and they restored it and it's now on display in a um, museum in Berlin so we'll come back to that a little bit later Uh, another interesting thing about Pergamon was that it is described as being a flourishing producer of parchment so they Produced a lot of parchment there. Okay, so we'll finally come to our reading this morning. So before we do, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that is here amongst us. And Lord, we just pray that as we we come to your word and and Lord, as I speak about uh, what your word is saying to us this morning. Lord, we just pray that your spirit will be here just prompting us and guide in us. And Lord, I just pray that you will um, place things in each of our hearts that we can take away from this word this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, so we're at Revelation 2, and we're reading from verse 12 to verse 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know your works, and where you dwell where Satan's throne is and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Today's message is titled Compromise with the World. The Church of Pergamon is known as the Compromising Church or the worldly church. And the reason for this is that the congregation allowed false teaching and a worldly lifestyle to exist within their midst. Not everybody in the church was involved and in fact Christ brings high praise to those who have been faithful. As we unfold this message we discover that the congregation lived in a very worldly city. They were surrounded by idolatry and were under pressure from outside the church to compromise with the world around them. They were under persecution. Against this pressure, persecution and temptation from outside, the church of Pergamon stood strong. However, Christ brings to them a concern, and his concern was with the compromise and tolerance that came from within their own ranks. Some of them held to and lived out false doctrine. The people involved lived a life of compromise. In some ways they looked like and acted like the culture that surrounded them and they were mixing it in with their Christianity. And what was not helping the situation was that it was being tolerated by the church at large. Christ rightly warns them of the perilous situation that they were in. And if allowed to continue, this internal compromise would bring judgment upon the entire church. As with the other letters to the churches at Ephesus and Smyrna, Christ introduces himself as the ultimate author. So John was penning the letter, but Christ was talking through him. And as he identifies himself, he also identifies an aspect of the vision that John had seen back in Revelation 1. And this was the vision of the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ. These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now when we look in scripture, the sharp two-edged sword is a reference to a couple of things. It's a reference to the word of God and a reference to judgment. The most familiar reference we have is to the word of God. In Ephesians 6 Paul identifies the word of God as the sword of the Spirit when he is sharing with us about the armour of God. And when we look at Hebrews 4 it brings out that the sword is also a reference to judgement. Hebrews 4 verse 12 to 13 For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This picture of the sword being a symbol of the word of judgment of the word and of judgment is fleshed out later again in the letter of Revelation. In Revelation 19 we are given a picture of Jesus as judge and this is at his second coming. And the means of him doing so of being the judge will be with the word of God the sharp sword. This is from Revelation 19.15 Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. Now if we were to put ourselves into the sandals of one of the members of the church of Pergamum at the time and if we were hearing this introduction for the first time when we heard this description of Christ bearing the sharp two-edged sword, we would probably recognise that this isn't the most positive of starts. We would probably think, "Uh uh-oh, this isn't good. Where is this leading to? However, as with Ephesus and Smyrna, Christ first brings to the church at Pergamon a commendation. Before he talks to them about where they are falling down on the job, he commends them for holding fast to his name and remaining faithful. And this is indeed remarkable because the city of Pergamon, where they were, they were really up against it. Look at how Christ describes the city of Pergamon. He calls it the place where Satan dwells and states that the throne of Satan is there. Now that, that's not something that you will read in any tourist brochure and you won't hear it on any of the promotional videos. There was a lot of things going on in Pergamon at the time which justifies this dark description all or some of these things would contribute to this picture of Pergamon as being the place where Satan dwelt. the first thing we're going to look at is the altar of Zeus and um, we have a picture there that's that's in the berlin museum it's in uh, it's called the Museum of Pergamon I think it is and that's based in Berlin so that's the recovered and um, restored altar of Zeus. Now if you were to look up the altar of Zeus on Google, you would probably find uh, descriptions on it uh, being called the throne of Satan. And that probably comes directly from this scripture. So some people attribute the throne of Satan or the altar of Zeus as being the throne of Satan. Now this, as you can see, is a magnificent structure and it dominated the Pergamon Acropolis. Um, It's a massive horseshoe shaped court. It's got columns all around it. And you can also see there um, the frieze on the base of it. Uh, And you probably can't quite tell, but that frieze uh, depicts a battle of gods and giants. Now, of course, this altar was dedicated to the worship of Zeus, who, who was a Greek god. Um, now, if you're a bit like me, not quite up on your Greek mythology. Zeus was the god of the sky and thunder and he was also the king of gods, So he was sort of like the head honcho. So we have the altar of Zeus. The other thing that was present around the church was the temple of Asclepius. Asclepius is another Greek god. He is the Greek god of healing. And he was also worshipped in Pergamon at the time. And people came from all over the ancient world and they were seeking to be healed at his temple. Now Asclepius was depicted as a snake and an interesting bit of trivia is that they had non-poisonous snakes roaming freely through his temple. So you would probably prefer to visit today now that it is in ruins than you probably would have back in the day when all these snakes were roaming around the place. And his insignia, which we have there, uh, was an entwined serpent on a staff. Now, I'm no expert on symbols, but I'm pretty sure I've seen that in medical things, and it's probably a symbol of certain medical establishments and places like that. Now, when we think of symbolism in the Bible, we know that Satan is sometimes symbolised as a serpent. Now the other thing that was happening in Pergamon at the time was emperor worship and this is possibly the main contributor to this reference of Pergamon being the dwelling place of Satan. And we have touched on this a number of times in the last few weeks. Emperor worship was the chief reason for the persecution that the church as a whole was facing at the time. Dave reminded us last week that the idea of worshipping the emperor as a god did not fly well with Christianity. Of course Christians would only worship the Lord God Almighty. At the time of John writing the letter of Revelation Pergamon was the leading and official centre of emperor worship in the region of Asia Minor. So this church was right at the heart of the emperor worship in that area. And it was emperor worship that was the biggest threat to the Christians of the day. Um, We spoke about the persecution that the first century Christians were facing when we opened up Revelation 1 and this was the reason why John was in prison on Patmos. The early church was being pressured to undertake emperor worship and it was for their refusal to worship the emperor and not so much not worshipping those other Greek gods like Zeus and Asclepius that they were facing persecution. The Church of Pergamon serve as a great example to us. We see that despite everything that was going on around them they have proven themselves faithful to the name of Christ. They stood firm. They were surrounded by all these pagan temples with all this pagan symbolism and worship and along with that came the lifestyles um, that these things brought with them. They were located at the heart of emperor worship Uh, And no doubt they faced huge pressure to compromise. Yet despite all this they held fast to the name of Christ and were faithful to him. And this is further illustrated by the mention of Antipas. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now Antipas was probably a leader at the church of Pergamon and it is assumed that he refused to compromise to emperor worship and as such he paid the ultimate price. According to tradition Antipas was cruelly executed. He was apparently slowly roasted to death in a bronze kettle and this is sometimes referred to as being a brazen bull so it was pretty horrific. Antipas is described by Christ as his faithful witness and martyr and would have served as an example to those at Pergamon and ultimately to us to remain faithful when we are persecuted, tempted or pressured to compromise with the world around us. Now hopefully none of us are even in a situation like his but no matter what situation we are in Antipas gives us an exceptional example of remaining faithful no matter what. Now whether the tradition of how Antipas was executed is accurate or not, you can just imagine the horror and fear that would have permeated the Pergamon church. I know something like that, if it happened to us or around us, it would really affect us, it would really rock us. But despite this, They held fast to the name of Christ and they did not deny his faith. So the church of Pergamon, they were very good at standing against compromising their faith uh, when it came from forces outside the church. However, Christ identifies a threat from within the church. Despite their stand against external forces, this internal threat could see them compromising their faith. And the problem was twofold. Firstly there were those within the church who held to false teaching and secondly this false teaching was being tolerated. It was allowed to continue uh, amongst them. But I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things, sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you have also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Which thing I hate. So there were two groups of people who were operating within the church who really shouldn't have been allowed to. There were the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. Now one of these groups is based on the teaching of an Old Testament figure while the other is based around of all people a New Testament deacon. Both groups presented a lifestyle of mixing Christianity with ungodly practices and conduct. They were both about compromise. So first of all let's take a look at Balaam. Now I just want to point out these aren't actual mugshots of these guys. I did try to find stuff on the internet to portray them. Um, So we have these. Now particularly... Um, the Moabite woman that's not the Moabite woman I looked up pictures of the Moabite woman and let's just say they wouldn't be suitable to be shown in a church on Sunday morning so thus we have this anyway Balaam was a prophet for hire and he was around in the time of Moses and this was during the period of time after the Israelites had left Egypt and before they entered the promised land and that was about 40 years later Balak was the king of Moab. Now the people of Moab and King Balak, they greatly feared the Israelites. And the reason for this was because the Israelites had just defeated the Amorites and they were a vast, vast nation. Balak even voices his fear by saying, This mob will devour everything in sight like an ox devours grass in a field. So what Balak did was he sent for Balaam the prophet for hire and he sent for him to come and put a curse on the Israelites. Balak offered a great sum of money for the prophet's services. Initially Balaam refused to go because God told him not to. However eventually Balaam did go. But he made it clear to King Balak that he would only speak the words that the God of Israel told him to say. So King Balak made three attempts to get Balaam to speak a curse over Israel. But each time Balaam ended up speaking the word that God gave to him. And this word from God was a blessing over the nation of Israel. So instead of cursing Israel, he blessed Israel. Now I used to think that Balaam got a bit of a bad rap from the New Testament writers. I mean on the surface of it, Balaam obeyed God and only spoke what God directed him to say. And besides all this, the guy had a talking donkey. I mean, how fantastic is that? However, the New Testament writers reveal Balaam's true heart and his manipulative ways. Peter uses Balaam as an example of a false teacher and shares how he loved the wages of unrighteousness. The talking donkey was actually rebuking Balaam and he was rebuking him for his disobedience and sin. So God used the donkey to speak this rebuke to him directly. You see, God told Balaam not to go but Balaam went anyway and even though he protested much saying it wasn't for the promise of payment greed was in fact his true motivation. Now Jude confirms this when he talks about apostates. Now what an apostate is, is somebody who's abandoned their religious belief or principle. And this is what Jude says about them. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now what's interesting about this situation is that The Israelites stood up against the threat from outside. They defeated the Amorites and they struck fear into the heart of the king of Moab and the people of Moab. And even when the king tried to have a prophet bring down a curse onto them, God intervened. And he turned, and he turned that curse into a blessing. However, as we look further into this story, we see that trouble arose from within the Israelite camp. We read in Numbers 25 how some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with the local Moabite woman. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods. So some of the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the false gods of Moab. And it was in this way that Israel joined in the worship of Baal, of Peor. They were compromised. The repercussions of this event was that the Lord's anger blazed against his people and he brought judgement. Today's text describes this incident as the stumbling block placed before the children of Israel leading them to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. And who was behind all of this happening? none other than Balaam the prophet for hire. And we discover that in Numbers 31. It says, look, look these women now talking about the Moabite woman look these women cause the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor and there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. So Balaam had counseled King Balak to infiltrate the Israelite ranks with some of these Moabite women. And the aim and result was to seduce some of the Israelite men to worship a foreign god. So Balak didn't place a curse on the Israelites but his cunning plan B would have meant that he still received his big payout. So that's the history behind Balaam and the Balaamites. Let's now look at the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans derived their name from Nicholas. Now Nicholas was one of the seven men chosen in Acts to to oversee the distribution of food. Now I must make it clear that it is not known whether Nicholas turned bad or whether a following raised up which perverted his teachings. Whatever the case, the Nicolaitans were all about abusing Christian liberty. Uh, one of the things that they taught was that Christians could participate in pagan orgies. So obviously that doesn't fly too well. They were into immorality and idolatry and they were similar to the Balaamites. And basically both these groups were about compromising, compromising and compromising. So we had these two very unchristian groups operating within the Pergamon church. Now the majority of believers did not participate in the teachings of either group and in fact they were commended for their steadfastness and their faithfulness. However these two groups were allowed to remain. The warning here is very clear. Compromising our faith to succumb to the ungodly practices of the world is a real threat to us as individuals and as a church. The temptation of compromise can be from outside of the church and we can see the things that the world practices and we can be pressured from the world or by the world to conform to these things. We can even be persecuted because we don't conform. The church at Pergamon remained faithful despite these external temptations and influences. They dwelt where the throne of Satan was yet they stood fast. However, Satan was not above infiltrating the church of Pergamon and placing a stumbling block before them. Here were two false teachings and practices which centred on greed and compromise. There are two risks you run when the church has this sort of thing going on. The first is that this false teaching can spread and infect the whole church. The second is that the church will experience God's judgment And even though not all are participating in these practices the judgement will affect the entire church. And what does Christ say about these false teachings? Well we read that he has total disdain for the practices of the Nicolaitans. There is no minting of words. He hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the doctrine of compromise. The children of Israel at Peor Face the anger of judgment and judgment of God because of their compromise. Similarly, the church of Pergamon were facing judgment. As we move on to verse 16, we see that Christ not only identifies the problem, but he also provides the remedy. He calls the believers to action and he uses one word, and that word is repent. When it comes to sin, there is only one actionable remedy that is available to us. Repentance. This is whether we are to repent as individuals or to repent as a church or both. Now repentance isn't just being sorry, it is doing something about it. Repentance is described as a change of mind that results in a change of behaviour. And we often uh, describe it as being a U-turn Turning away from sin and moving towards God. The church of Pergamon were called to repent and they were given a warning if they didn't. I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Judgment was about to come upon the entire church. The Balaamites and the Nicolaitans uh, for their practices and for their sin and the rest of the church for tolerating them. 1 Corinthians 5 brings a good illustration to this situation and shares why repentance is necessary and how it is accomplished. Now this illustration is of leaven or yeast mixing in a lump of dough. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, leaven or yeast is a picture of sin. And one of the requirements of the Israelites when they were preparing for the Passover supper was that they were to eat unleavened bread. And, in fact, it went so far that no leaven was to be found anywhere in their, in their dwellings. Leaven is a small but a very powerful ingredient. It works through the entire dough and it spreads through it and it puffs it up. Sin and false teaching is the same. It can spread through and corrupt the entire congregation. And what is the solution? Purge out the old leaven. Get rid of it. Repent and sin no more. And those who are faithful will overcome. As with the other churches, Christ brings a promise to those who overcome. And Revelation isn't the first time that John has written about overcomers. And it's interesting to compare what we read in the letters of Revelation to what John writes in 1 John 5 about those who overcome. So this is from 1 John 5 verses 4 to 5. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now Christ promises two things to the faithful members of Pergamon that they overcome. He promises hidden manna and he promises a white stone with a new name written on it which no one knows except the person who receives it. To understand what the hidden manna stands for, we need to look elsewhere in scripture. Manna was the food which God supernaturally provided to the Israelites during the time of Moses, when the Israelites spent 40 years in the wilderness. And it apparently was like a white coriander seed and tasted like wafers which were made of honey. The manna fell or came down from heaven and it provided sustenance to the people. Psalm 78 demonstrates this to us. Uh, This is from verses 23 to 24. Yet he had commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat and given them of the bread of heaven. Men ate angels food, he sent them food to the full. Now Jesus intentionally compares himself to the provision of manna to the Israelites. And we find this in John 6. These are the words of Jesus. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So the manna symbolises Jesus Christ and all the blessings and benefits of knowing Christ. And like the manna that came from heaven to feed and sustain the Israelites, Jesus also came from heaven. However, he will not just feed us and sustain us for 40 years, but eternally. Now I've done a bit of a check up on all the commentators and just about this hidden aspect of the mana. And they all sort of agree that it refers to the fact that Jesus was no longer visible. He had died on the cross, had risen from the dead and then he ascended to be at the right hand of the Father in glory. So this mana, this bread of life, was visible and physically tangible but it is now hidden from our physical realm. and We can also draw comparisons between the manna being kept in the Ark of the Covenant and we find that in Exodus 16.33. It tells us how a jar of manna was kept in a sacred place and this was later identified as being the Ark of the Covenant in Hebrews 9 and they kept it there as a memorial. So the comparisons that we can draw is that the the jar of manna that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant it was kept in a sacred and holy place and Jesus the bread of life who senses his ascension is now with the Father in glory. Now the white stone had quite a few applications at the time that John wrote this letter but two of these applications stand out as relating to what it's speaking about the white stone here. Now the first would be when a person was on trial and a judge would place a white stone into a jar to pronounce a vote of acquittal. Uh, it was like a vote of not guilty. And apparently a black stone was a vote of condemnation. So the judge would render his decision by what stone he cast into the jar. Now the parallel that we can draw here is that Christ died on the cross bearing our sins and because of this has voted for our acquittal. Strictly speaking the sinner is not innocent but because of God's grace and Christ's sacrifice they are proclaimed innocent, they are acquitted. And there is a second application that we find at the time of John writing this letter. In the day there was a Roman custom of awarding white stones to the victors in athletic contests. And these stones would have the athlete's name inscribed on it and they would use these stones and it would be an admission to a special awards banquet. Our application this morning is that the white stone represents how having been declared righteous through faith in Christ we have the mission to feast with Christ now and ultimately the feast with Christ in glory. It's like a golden ticket. We're going to return back to Revelations 19 uh, in verses 6 to 9 and this speaks to us about that ultimate banquet uh, from verse 6 to 9. And I heard as it were the voice of of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, "Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice, and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready, and to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now as we close this morning, I encourage you to take heart from this message. The Church of Pergamon faced the challenge of not compromising their faith with the world around them. And how is their situation 2,000 years ago and on the other side of the world similar to what we face today? What can we take from today's message? Well, we know for a fact that we aren't surrounded by great temples dedicated to ancient gods. And we're not facing extreme persecution to bow the knee of some political leader and to treat them as some sort of god. And we don't have groups of people operating within our church that are obviously and blatantly anti-Christian. However, I believe this text is very relevant to us today. We know, for, for a start off, we know that Christianity in the Western world is under pressure to be more tolerant, to conform to the standards and the expectations of this evolving world that we live in. Now this pressure comes in many different forms. It comes from the mindsets of groups of people. It comes from people that we know and we interact with. And it comes from our culture in general. And that's not even taken into account the temptation that we face when we encounter the bright lights and the attractiveness of lifestyles that are against the word of God. And also, no doubt, somewhere along the line, legislation will start coming in that will call upon us to deny our faith in some way, shape or form. So the question this morning is, how do we fear? How will we fear as these things continue or escalate? The example given to us by the Church of Pergamon is to hold fast to the name of Christ and to not deny his faith. And while we need to be deliberate about this, We also need to immerse ourselves in the Spirit of God, in the Word of God, in our prayer life and in our fellowship. All of these things strengthen our faith and help us stand when we're facing outside influences. The warning we receive today is don't let false teaching or sinful practices take hold of your life or the life of your church. There is a multitude of false teaching and practices out there in the wider Christian world. Some of them are blatant, but some are subtle and even appear to be based on scripture and they're probably the most dangerous ones. A lot of them have greed, immorality and compromise at the heart of them. All of them are stumbling blocks that can cause us to trip. They can infect the entire church much like that One piece of bad fruit can spread rottenness throughout the whole bowl. In the case of Pergamon, Christ didn't say to them that he might bring judgment. He said that he will bring judgment unless they repented. The challenge Christ issues to us when we consider this is to repent. Repent, purge that leaven, Purge out any false teachings and practices from your personal walk and from the church. Don't tolerate it and don't compromise it. And in doing so we should turn to Christ. As we pray, may we also thank and praise the God who has graciously opened the path for us to become and to remain overcomers. Let us pray. Lord, we just thank you that you love us and care us enough to to bring these words to us, Lord God. To bring to us um, words that, that challenge us, that encourage us, that teach us. And it's not just a big smack around the head with a stick, but Lord... It is for our benefit. And it's because you love us that you show us these things. Lord, we just pray that we can stand to be faithful, Lord God. The whole message this morning was about not compromising with the world around us. And Lord, we pray that you strengthen us. May we continue to, to seek you and Lord, to seek your ways and to seek your will in your lives. To rely upon your Holy Spirit. May we immerse ourselves in your word, in our prayer and in our fellowship. May we strengthen ourselves and strengthen each other. Lord, we also just pray that you help us to be vigilant against any false teachings that would seek to uh, derail us or to put a stumbling block before us. Lord, may we be vigilant against these things and may we cast them out if they come our way. Lord we thank you for the example that the people at Pergamon set for us and we thank you for the lessons that we can learn from them as well. And Lord we just pray that as we go about our week and our lives Lord may we put your word into practice and into our hearts. Lord I pray that you have spoken something into each person's heart this morning. Lord may you bring to us things that we need to think about or consider or work on. And may we come to you and work through those things. In Jesus' name, Amen.